0: Uh, We love to, as as Vic said, we we open up the Bible, we believe what it says, and that is questioned at times like this. When you open up to Revelation chapter 2 and you tout yourself as an expository preacher and you believe that you're an expository hearer, let's coin that phrase, and you love the Bible, you obey the Bible, you believe it as it comes at you, and then you find yourself in Revelation chapter 2 as Jesus writes his letter to Pergamum. And you start having to swallow and stomach things that Jesus says that you just can't get around. And it is truly glorious if we take it on the chin. It is truly fearful if we try and uh, run away from it. Uh, And it is fearful if we are the unrepentant to whom it addresses. Let's read chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, the letter to the church in Pergamum, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice Sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. The Lord Jesus Christ has been speaking these letters and it's been such an encouragement to be able to come to the portion of scripture where Jesus just speaks directly through his apostles in his own words, in this prophetical, apocalyptic language to his bride, the church. These are are love letters from the husband to his bridegroom, Uh, sorry, to his bride. He is the bridegroom. These, These are letters from Jesus to his church, but they don't all come smooth. They don't all come easy they don't all go down very nicely. This one is, is the beginning of some, some very harsh criticism that Jesus has. Some very harsh criticism with threats. That is, uh, you know, we saw in Ephesus the reality that the church was being called back to its original witness. Being called back to its original influence, its original gospel proclamation in the in the city of Ephesus that they used to be able to reach the whole nation with, and now they just don't care much. They, they've they they've they've gone cool. They've they've stirred slow. They've ground to a halt. Jesus isn't proclaimed as much anymore. And Jesus' threat was that he would kill the church, that he would remove the church's existence so that the individuals would would be would be dissipated, would not be worshiping in the city anymore. Use your your opportunity, he was saying. Use your opportunity, or you'll lose your opportunity. But tonight's threat is not like that. He's not saying, I'll I'll kill the church. I'll take the body of the church away. He's saying, I'll kill individuals. We start seeing how that is played out. First of all, we're going to see Jesus in judgment in verse 12. Then we're going to see Pergamum in Satan's throne room. We're going to see Pergamum in Satan's temple. Pergamum in Jesus' throne room. And Pergamum in Jesus' banquet hall as we go through. So look first at verse 12 where Jesus identifies himself to the church of Pergamum. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a threatening and intimidating open. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's a guy with a massive sword. That's what he told me to tell you. He has an enormous sword, sharp on both sides, and it's pointed at us. That's not real warm. That's not welcome. That's not a friendly Mormon knocking on your door. That's judgment. Jesus, Jesus is here coming to this church initially and immediately identifying himself in judgment. We're going to see this next week as well when he comes to Thyatira. But he's introducing himself with this this judgment theme that is coming. Uh, And and the language is the, the, the one with the sword. That is coming out of his well, he says he's the one with a sharp two-edged sword. but in chapter one we remember reading in verse 16, as John had the vision of Jesus, the sword that he had was in fact coming out of his mouth. chapter 1 verse 16 says, "From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And we know that this is an instrument for, for judgment and for striking down his enemies because in chapter 20 we see the same language John sees and says, From his mouth, that is the the ruling and reigning triumphant Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So this sword language is not so much defense. It's not that, that Jesus is saying here, Pergamum, I am your sword and I am your shield and I will defend you. It's rather that he's saying, just as I will strike down the rebellious nations with my sword, I will come to you also with the same sword and strike down those within you who are acting like the rebellious nations. In other words, what Jesus wants them to know immediately, what we need to understand is that churches, Christians, are not saved from Jesus' judgment because we have the great refuge or the great shield of calling ourselves followers of Jesus, We call ourselves a church. It says it on the door when you walk in, Jesus. We call ourselves a church. Our constitution says it. I call myself a Christian. My social media bio says it. Look at my family. We are Christians. We love Jesus. We love the word. We're a church. Back up, Jesus. Nothing to judge here. None of that is a defense against Jesus' judgment. Not a single person will be spared judgment because they belonged to a church. No church will be spared judgment because they call themselves a church. What truly spares us from judgment is true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which finds itself always repenting of sin and and separating ourselves from sin. So that there is a sharp distinction between the church and the world which which it is evangelizing. Not a separation that we don't let them in here. We don't have barred doors on the front. We don't have barbed wire around this place. We're not trying to keep six feet from a sinner. They're always welcome in, and yet there is a distinction, a clear, sharp distinction between what, what the church is like, how we live, how we teach, and what the world is like. Where the church acts like the world, she gets treated like the world by her apparent groom, Jesus the judge. That's the language. Secondly, we see that Pergamum, is in Satan's throne room. Say that five times quick. I keep stuffing it up. Pergamum in Satan's throne room. In verse 13, we see Jesus address the church, and he, and he recognizes where they live, and he recognizes it as having some, some very stark, uh, apparent, clear difficulties. He says, I know your trib... Oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong part. Uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So in, in two instances, he says, Pergamum is the dwelling place of Satan. It's his throne room. That's what he says. You live where Satan's throne is. And at the end of the, the, the verse there, he says, uh, where Satan dwells. Uh There's three things that is probably coming out of (coughs) informing Jesus using that language. (coughs) First of all, is probably the fact, and this ties in with Jesus saying he has the sword, is the fact that Pergamum was one of the few, relatively few, Roman cities that actually had the power and the authority to enact capital punishment. In many other uh, uh, areas and regions, you had to, once the the local magistrate has decided that one criminal was worthy of death, they would then ship them off to go and be killed to one of these cities that had the authority of the sword to kill and take away the life. That's one of the ways that Rome kept its control over the happenings of its its, uh, 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 regions and provinces. Probably part of what Jesus is saying is, Satan has a sword in your city, I have a sword coming from my mouth, Guess whose sword is bigger? Obviously, Jesus. Joked with the church plant last week. If it, was, if it was an Aussie translation, he would say, you call that a sword? This is a sword. Well, it doesn't. Some of you have watched Croc Dundee. The rest of you are yet to be converted. So he says, you know, maybe it's that. Maybe that's the thing that's sort of coming through from the background. Uh, they have the authority to kill you, but uh, and therefore he's calling it Satan's throne room, where, where he lops the head off of those who don't believe in him. Maybe that's in the background. Probably also in the background was the fact that, Smyrna, um, that Pergamum had uh, the first temple that was built in the area, in the Asian province, to Caesar. We recalled last week that in Smyrna, they were a very persecuted church. They were a city in love with Caesar worship. They had two Caesar temples, two Caesar altars. Well, Pergamum doesn't have two. They only have one, but they do have the first one that was built. So their, their loyalty to Caesar, shown through the fact that they worship Caesar as a god and pinch incense to him and offer up sacrifices and uh, worship in his temple, That that's going back a fair way. They have a long proven loyalty to Caesar. Now, maybe that's why Jesus is saying, you are where Satan dwells, because Caesar is falsely being worshipped in your midst. Maybe also the reason that he's saying, you are where Satan dwells, is because there was a great large temple to Asclepius, which sounds like a foot disease, but it is not. It is, in fact, the, the Greco-Roman god of healing, funny enough. Uh, the Greco-Roman god of healing, uh, his, his symbol was a, was a staff with a snake wrapped around it, which is kind of why in medical uh, uh, imagery today you'll see uh, the staff with two snakes wrapped around it. There was a confusion in history. But anyway, that, that, that's what we see in modern day. It comes from Asclepius. And one of the ways that Asclepius would heal you was that you would come and sleep over in his temple. And in his temple, you'll love this, there was pits of snakes, non-venomous snakes, don't worry. Pits of non-venomous snakes and Asclepius, in a kind of Freddy Krueger style, would come and visit you in your dreams. So you would sleep in the pits of the snakes and he would come and visit you while you slept and heal you. That was kind of the idea. All sorts of other immoral, immoral things happened in the temple of Asclepius. But maybe that's also why Jesus is saying, you'll live in where Satan dwells. He's got, the, he's got the state magistrate power of killing you. Satan is also here in the false worship of Caesar and the false worship of Asclepius. All of this comes around to say to the people in Pergamum, you're living in a pretty satanic city. They may not know Satan by name. They may not know the, the background of Lucifer and his fallen angel history, and yet they are living and serving Satan, the ruler of this world, who has in the death of Jesus been cast out, but he's thrown a fight before he is thrown down entirely. Yet Jesus is saying to them, I know where you dwell. I know all of this about you, and yet you did not deny my faith. He gives to them an enormous encouragement in knowing. He says, I know what you've been going through. As, as Antipas, which we don't know exactly who it was. it was. It was a member of the church. Maybe it was a pastor. He had been hauled out from among them. It says that he was killed in their midst, or I think the ESV's translation is among them. This may mean their actual physical midst, that, that they were worshiping for church. They're having a fellowship meal. They're doing something, and in their midst came the, the Roman soldiers and killed somebody, rather illegally, in their midst. Whatever it means. They had this period of persecution where somebody was killed. A faithful witness held to the teaching of Jesus would not not shrink back, held fast, confessed Jesus as Lord, was killed among them, and not a single person was motivated to give up their faith. This is a church that, as far as Caesar worship goes, was well-grounded, not giving up its confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying to them, I know. I know the whole situation. I've seen your steadfastness. And yet there's another element to him saying, I know. It's as if he's telling them, you have zero excuses. After what I'm about to say, you're going to want to say, you know, Jesus, that's harsh. And you seem to only commend Pergamum last week. I mean, Smyrna last week, they were suffering. We're also suffering. Pastor Antipas, Deacon Antipas just had his head lopped off. We need some grace. We need some wiggle room. You know, lay off, Jesus. You said all this stuff, and that's perfectly true. Ephesus should hear that. But we're persecuted. Like, we're in Satan's throne room. Jesus is saying right from the outset, I know. Don't come at me. Don't send me an email and tell me that I was too harsh for a church in your situation. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who knows exactly whom he has regenerated. We never have the excuse of reading something in Scripture and saying to Jesus, "Well, you see, I have past traumas that dot dot dot. Well, see, I'm the I have a personality trait, and I did a you know a, a test online, and it came out that I'm an S I N N E R, and that means I actually don't have to uh, I don't fit those sorts of things. That's great for the S I S I. Can't do it. Three sermons in today. I'm, I'm not spelling saint was going to be the joke. You know, we don't get to make those excuses. We just never have the ability to come to Jesus and say, that's great, they can do that, but my situation is literally anything goes through the shredder when it meets when it goes onto Jesus' desk. He says, I know what I said to you. I know who you are. I know your proclivities. I know your sins. I know your past. I know what I wrote. There is no excuses no matter the culture, no matter the, the time in history, no matter the rulers, no matter the, the surrounding religions, Jesus speaks and he speaks as one whose words are like a sharp two-edged sword. That's who is addressing the church. And then you see the issue, the issue that they had been tolerating and putting up with in verse 14 to 15. Not only are they, are they in Satan's throne room as a church, but their members are actually going to Satan's temples. So look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Balaam... If you were here during the Jude series, this is going to be recent memory for you, but Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. He was not Hebrew. He was was just a a man who God seemed to be speaking through at times and yet himself very immoral. And as the Israelites were actually not not yet an established nation, they were a people but not a nation, they didn't have their land, as they were coming to their land, some of the nearby kings got a little worried because they're going to come and take our land. So the prophecies say... So they scurry up to Balaam, and they say, Balaam, you're a prophet. You curse people, they die. You bless people, they live. We have money. We'll offer it to you if by your cursing you can kill the Israelites. And three times Balaam tries. He opens his mouth to bring a curse against Israel, and nothing came out but blessing and protection and provision and all of that. That's what came against Israel, and the, and the kings were so annoyed. This is Balak, one of the kings that wanted the Israelites dead. He was so annoyed. Balaam wouldn't do it, but desperate for money, and with no internal morals of his own, he was able to tell Balak that a way you can overthrow Israel is not by killing them. No one can kill them as long as God protects them. The only person really that can kill them is God. And yet, you can help them get on God's bad side. He said, "Send down the the young women, the pretty ladies. Send them down to the little camps of the Israelites." tempt the men over into immorality with them, and then it's a very short skip and a jump to take the men from bedridden, immorality, adultery, fornication, and sex to worshiping your gods. It's easy. Do that, and God will curse them. God will send a plague to them. God will kill them. And so it happened. And so Balaam is now this this picture that Jude picks up and that Jesus picks up as false prophets who, for the sake of gain, teach God's people to commit sexual immorality and to join the feasts of the idols. Jesus is saying to them now, you have people among you that are just like Balaam or that are following the teaching of Balaam. In in the first century context, Jesus actually names them and says, these are the Nicolaitans. So the Nicolaitans are the the New Testament first century version of the ancient uh, Balaam followers And we don't know much about the Nicolaitans except for the fact we know a lot about Balaam. And then Jesus says, in the same way, you've got some Nicolaitans. So probably that's what the Nicolaitans were doing after some guy called Nicholas. Church history, some streams of church history will tell us that this is the same Nicholas who was named as a deacon in Acts chapter 6. Filled with pride, filled with his own self-glory, perverted the truth, went out and started his own teaching. We, We don't know for sure. The point is that there's some guy, Nicholas, who has a a, a teaching, a compromise, an allowance of sexual immorality, and some of the people of Pergamum are following his teaching, just like Balaam. Probably the feasts in the temples, to Asclepius and to to Caesar, There's, there's feasts that are going on in worship to those gods, and it is not, we see this in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, The issue is not that the meat that is dedicated to the idols are then sold at the butchery and Christians are eating those secondhand. That's not an issue. Paul makes very clear those demons, you know, bless their own food. As soon as it leaves their temple, the food belongs to Jesus. We can eat it with a happy smile. Don't worry about it. Just give thanks for it. However, however, this is not what is going on. It's not the conscience issue of eating food that was once belonging to a demon idol. Now the issue is that Christians are actually going into the temple sitting down at the feasts and joining in worship to the idols. There's no room for conscience there. That is immoral. That is idolatrous. And for that, Jesus threatens his sword. You have to understand, in Pergamum, I mean, in the first century, and literally almost anywhere before the recent century, a feast was a tremendous temptation. We're often overeating. How often do we get to the end of a meal and just shove it to the end of the table, put it back in the happy meal box, chuck it in the bin, we gorge ourselves. It's it's not even that infrequent that we are just frequently overeating. That, that's a that's 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 one of the, the blessings of the West is a is an abundance of choice of food. It's one of the sins of, of us that are of our gluttony, of our overeating, and yet think what it was to be to be in equivalent today in the third world. You're lucky if you get two meals. You're blessed if you get one meal, you are royalty if you get three. Three that even leave you somewhat satisfied, and then and then what the pagans are having, they're just inviting you, open invite cards falling down onto your in, in, into your post box, an invite to a feast, a glory. You, you wouldn't have have a feast if you weren't a Caesar, but these idol temples are offering free food galore. Those were great temptations for the Christians, and they were being called to deny it. Don't go in there. That's worship, and Nicholas was teaching people that it's okay. You can worship Jesus and have your idolatrous feast. Join in the sexual morality. It's just not a big deal. <clears throat> the example is very, you know, we, we, can, we can understand the sort of how it looks and how it acts out in, in our day today. If we were taking Pergamum and sort of gave him a, a 21st century context, of course, it would be something like the, the Christian trades in Pergamum. We're missing out on contracts and important important jobs because they weren't going with the you know with the boss with the with the guy who was dishing out the contracts and the jobs when he went to the strip joint and has, had his executive board meetings. You now we we weren't joining in the immoral, disgusting conversation and that kind of thing, and so we we missed out on the jobs. And so, out of love of money, as Balaam would teach, as Nicola Nicholas would teach, out of love of money, out of Insufficient faith that God will provide, they compromised, they joined the feast, they worshipped the idol and tried to worship Jesus at the same time. Or maybe, you know, ladies among the the church who who had just had friends who weren't Christians and they were compromising, they were following their friends into lewdness and sensuality and how they spoke and how they dressed and how they excused their adulteries and they all just believed it wasn't that bad. This happens in every age of the church. Sexual immorality is one of the easiest things to legitimize and justify when it's yours. Every single person will have some excuse. I know we're not married yet, but in God's eyes, God's eyes are on fire according to Revelation. He's going to cut you up. Well, I think Jesus understands my situation. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still weak and, and yeah, decades or years or months of continual porn use. So I can call it repentant if I feel bad. Well, he doesn't love me like he used to love me. I I shouldn't have to be subject to this. This other man at work, he shows me attention. He knows what I'm like. He's so Christ-like. Surely God wants me to be happy instead of miserable. I I don't read that anywhere here. Prefer to be dead than happy in sin. That's what I read. He'd prefer to be dead and miserable. If that's physically miserable, he'd prefer to be dead if it meant holy. Jesus doesn't make the same excuses we do when he comes to this church that is tolerating in its members sexual immorality and joining and rubbing up against the sins of the world without, without distinction, and he threatens them with the sword of his mouth. And he does so today. Every one of us wants to believe that, that there's some, maybe generational, maybe maybe it's our point in history, maybe it's just you personally, there's some reason that your sexual sin is private and can remain that way. And yet the, the screaming testimony of Scripture is that each of our sins is, is not just serious enough to in fact tell you that you're you're playing with fire and at any moment it can consume your whole life, but that you're playing with fire in the household of God and you're tipping petrol over the rest. Now none of us know until until it all goes up, but each of our secret sins, as we are unified, In this covenantal, spiritual, unified body called our local church, your sin, however secret, affects the people you haven't even met yet. If we are in the church together, our levels of holiness and our degrees of unrepentant sin is affecting the overall purity of the church. Jesus considers us as a body together whom widespread there must be repentance from the individual right up to the top, to the whole congregation. There is no excuse. He does not allow the same excuses that we allow. Sexual sin must be rooted out from its smallest examples and its greatest examples. And yet Jesus speaks next in verse 16. (coughs) He speaks next in verse 16 about the fact that they are in his throne room. They live in Satan's throne room. They're worshiping in Satan's throne room. But ultimately, when he peels back the the veil, even further, they realize they are right in front of the judge sitting on his throne. Give us 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The answer is repentance. The answer is not figure out another excuse, ask for some accountability, ask for a while, try and extend out your grace. Do good in other areas so that God continues to give you wiggle room here. The answer is, Christian, today, repent actively, actually, externally, in behavior. Repent in mind, heart, and behavior of your sexual sin if it is being tolerated. And it applies to every sin a little bit of money that we steal from work, a little bit of crimes that we commit because we just don't think it's that big of a deal, a little bit of mistreatment of our spouse, a little bit of brutality against our children, any of it, any of it must be repented of. Jesus says, repent, and if not, I will come to you. So he's speaking to the whole church. The whole church, you're tolerating it, so repent of the toleration. But if not, I'll come to the individuals, and if you won't cut them out by the sword of the word through church discipline, I will come and cut them out through killing them. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. That is revelation language for killing them. Now if you want to shrink back a little bit and go maybe maybe literal biblical exposition is not my thing. I don't like the whole Jesus killing thing. I like the New Testament Jesus. Where's his where's his gentle kindness? I like baby Jesus. That's what I like. If that's you, you need to realize it is not at all surprising. If you read the whole of the New Testament that Jesus kills people in his church who claim to be his followers and yet are threatening the church with an insertion of cancerous sin, gangrenous sin that will take over the whole thing. Our first example is Acts 5, that we actually looked at in brief this morning. In Acts 5, as Ananias and Sapphira had brought in their offering and tried to lie to make it seem like a bigger offering than it was, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, killed them. Now, we don't have an answer as to whether they were truly repentant of their sin in general, having faith in Christ. They were true Christians, regenerate, and yet who had a bad day. And to make an example for the purity of his church, killed them. We don't know. We don't know whether they were truly unsaved, but we're not allowed to make that excuse. We're also told in 1 Corinthians 11, when the church as a whole was was just misusing the Lord's Supper. Some were getting drunk on the wine. Others were left to go starving. The pastors weren't doing anything about it. And the guy sleeping with his stepmom could come and have communion as well. They just didn't mind. The whole thing was a mess. Jesus says through the Apostle Paul that he'd already started killing people off. There are some sick, some dead because of this. We don't know. Are they dead because they were false Christians or dead because they were true Christians that Jesus needed to remove? We don't know so that we don't make an excuse. The fact is that if you call yourself a Christian and yet your life is unrepentant of sin, then you're not having faith in the fact that Jesus can by his blood and by his spirit free you from the power of sin in this life and therefore as we sin with the world, so we are judged with the world in fact in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 8, Paul picks up the example of Balaam and Balak and Israel sinning and says in that day When they indulged in sexual immorality, he says, 23,000 fell in a single day. That's just just his blanket exhortation and application. And we want to spiritualize it. But what would it look like for 23,000 people to spiritually be slain in the spirit? What does that mean? No. Paul's very unapologetic application is, he'll kill 23,000 of you if you keep on being immoral. It's simple. It is that straightforward. The, 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 The relationship is... I'm judging the world, my sword is coming to take out and to to shatter them and to bend their knee through repentance or, if not, through death. And when the church sides with the world, they are treated like the world. We see the same sort of uh, textual uh, structure in Colossians 3, verse 5 and 6, where Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, So he starts and ends with sexual immorality and idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So to the city with the the sword of, of the nation, the sword of the world, Jesus comes with his own sword and says, it's your choice. It's their judgment or it's my judgment. It's their sword or it's my sword. You, church, get to choose. But choose quickly because I'm coming soon. And then we see what he's called, for. really in practical terms, he's meaning church, elders, stand up, put into practical steps, church discipline for those who are sinning in practice without repentance and who are teaching falsehood without repentance. Those who repent, bring them into the number, remind them of the bloods, the, the, of the soul-saving power of the blood of Jesus and wash them of their sins, right? But for those who do not repent, put them out of the church so that when judgment comes for them, it's not a church member being killed. Do church discipline. Repent of your works, repent of your toleration, and teach the teachings of Jesus Christ. And then we see these great offerings from verse 17. We've seen seen that Pergamum is in Satan's throne room. We've seen that Pergamum has been involving itself in Satan's temple. Then we were reminded that, in fact, over and above all of that, they are, in fact, right in Jesus' throne room, ready for judgment. And yet also, we see a picture that they are in Jesus' banquet hall the victorious banquet hall. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The call is to conquer. Now there's a great wordplay going on here. We mentioned Balaam. We mentioned Nicholas, and now we're being told to be conquerors. Balaam's name in the Old Testament meant one who rules over the people. Nicholas's name meant one who overcomes the people. Now, the Christians are being called, in the same, same word for Nicholas, the, the Greek word was nikao, meant to overcome, to conquer, to win. So Jesus is saying to his church, overcome he who overcomes Rule over him who rules over the people. You be a people who conquer in and for the name of Jesus and you will receive the hidden manna. What in the world does the hidden manna mean? I think the, the language of hidden meaning invisible. It's, it's the spiritual manna. Now even manna is not all that appetizing. It was like a flaky white thing that came down in the desert when the Israelites were in the wilderness. They had to pick it up and ground it down to like a flower and make bread out of it. Very nice. Well, you could eat as a little flake. But overall, not all that appetizing. Here's the thing. Jesus is offering them something which visibly, worldly, fleshly, is not all that appetizing. He's calling for repentance from sin, even if it means starvation. Repentance from idolatry, even if it means poverty. redemption, uh, Repentance from sexual immorality, even if, it means, even if it means suffering in this life. Being cast out of the, the social norms of your city being thrown to the sword of Pergamum, even if it costs that, the manner that I offer, though unseen, though invisible, though just white flaky bread, is in fact much greater because we are told that in Jesus Christ's ministry, he called himself the bread that came down from heaven, which gives eternal life. He gives us things in this life and in terms of gospel glory and grace and blessings, it's not stuff that our world would want to spend money on. The glories that we have in Jesus are spiritual blessings that the kings of the earth are very happy to go without. Holiness, clarity of knowing God, following his law, a clean conscience. They don't want that stuff. They want glories and sex and they're happy to mix in that, all sorts of idolatry. Yet Jesus is saying, I'll give you a spiritual bread, a hidden manna, In other words, leave the banquet hall of the the idols. Join my banquet hall. And Revelation 19 shows us that there's an eternal banquet hall waiting for you. Food forevermore. They're being told to choose between the banquet of the idols and demons or the banquet of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here an invitation to sinners. An invitation to unworthy sinners. Come and partake in Jesus' feast. There's also the language of the white stone. And unless you're a toddler who collects stones or an adult with a cool hobby like that, not, not cool. But if you got that hobby, then, you know, all power to you. But why is he offering a white stone? And, and in fact, the stone has a little name written on it that no one knows except the, name, the one who's, who's giving it. What is all that? I think, I think there's, there's, again, probably three angles from this. In the Greek world, the white stone was, um, it was something that was given as an invitation to a great banquet to a king's feast. It was, it was like a card, like a, a personal private get you in the door card. Maybe maybe that's the language. You're invited, Jesus is saying. I'll give you the stone of invitation to the great banquet hall of the king. In the Roman world, it was a little bit similar, but, but in, in terms of the great games, the sport games, if you were a, an overcomer, a conqueror, that would be someone who, who stands onto the podium as a victor, you would be given the wreath and the... And the you know the, the 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 necklace of flowers, and you would be given a stone with the address for the overcomers banquet, right? The victory meal at the end of the games. You, you were given, and that was written in secret so that only you, who had the stone, who knew the address, could rock up there. Is that what's being pictured? Maybe. Then there's the Hebrew side of it. In the Hebrew world, sometimes they would they would uh, in terms of their legal voting. When it's capital punishment, or there's a crime being brought against you, the jury would each be given a white stone, and if they thought you were innocent, they would place it in front of you as their final, final, final call. And as the people would walk past, a stone would go down, a stone would go down, a stone. And if and if there is enough, if there is a majority, then you have your innocence. I think what we're being shown here is is all three: Jesus, the great conqueror, the great king against whom every single one of us have sinned, from whom every one of us deserve eternal death starvation and suffering for our sins, Jesus has come into the world, taken on a nature like ours, yet without sin. He was butchered on the cross by men, but in fact, he was atoning for the sin of man before God. It was God who was putting him to suffering. It was God who was crushing him so that through his blood we may be forgiven. So that all those who have faith, Jesus is now inviting, come and believe in me. You are invited to the great banquet hall of the king. You're invited to the great feast of the overcomers. You are being declared righteous by the highest authority that there is. Pergamum may cut your head off. They may find you guilty, but Jesus declares you innocent despite all of your sins. Innocent, righteous in Jesus Christ. That is the call. And that is the application for every one of us. Conquer by not not shrinking in persecution. Not being being led into fornication and the sin of the world, but conquer by holding fast the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the cost, till the point of death, when you are ushered into the great eternal feast with the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes you innocent and righteous. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that helps us understand your word. We're so grateful for the grace that is poured out through these pages as, as the Holy Spirit brings us to understand the gospel of your son, we are, we are brought to life. And, and as being regenerated Christians, the more we, we hear the gospel explained, the word explained, it brings us further and further into and deeper into this wonderful reality of spiritual life. I do pray, Lord God, that this word, which comes sharp and hard and divisive, and, and, and stabbingly and cuttingly out of the mouth of Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that your promise in Hebrews 4 would be true, that the living and active word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, would be cutting us deeply, would be carving out sin, so that our sin can be cut out, so that we do not need to be cut out of your people. I pray, Lord God, for those of us who are tolerating unrepentant sin, especially of the sexual variety, Father God, I pray that you would leave no excuse in our heart, that you would leave no no stone unturned in the souls of those who are even right now trying to make excuses. Lord God, would you fill them with the boldness of faith that knows Jesus will immediately bring forgiveness and wholeness into their life if they bring it in confession. Father God, give repentance to your people where we are sinful, where we as a church would would ever be, be, be like Pergamum, in, in the toleration of these false teachings and, and false practices, Lord, would you hold us fast to your word? Would you allow us to be divided rightly by the sword that comes from your mouth so that we have a pure people, a membership of real and true, regenerated Christians who believe and call on and live after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord God, for any, any in the room right now who, who are not Christians, who know themselves to be unbelievers, who have never placed their faith in Jesus, or who have thought they had previously, but understand now that they are still underneath the condemnation and the weight of their sins. God, would you be gracious in giving to them your Holy Spirit to bring them to new life, that they would believe in Jesus, and in believing in him, have eternal forgiveness. God, would you glorify your son in our midst this evening, and in his name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.